Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. All right. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast today. I'm pleased to be speaking with Pete Watts from Indufor. Pete, how are you doing? Hey, good, Kevin. Hey, how's things with you? Not too bad. Not too bad. We were just saying earlier, comparing temperatures. So I'm 42 degrees Celsius. With the Humidex, you're, I think you said, 10 degrees Celsius? 10 today, yeah, not bad. Probably getting into the 16s, I think, high 16s. Yeah, Yeah, high 16s, nice weather. And for the listeners who can't see us, I'm in a t-shirt and Pete's in in this kind of, not thick sweater, but sweater. So it's kind of funny uh, uh, just comparing, contrasting. But Pete, what time is it? And you're in Auckland, right? And it just got on 8.30 in the morning here on um, Wednesday, so we're a day ahead of you. Okay, yeah, yeah so we're, we're 4, 4.30-ish time frame, so yeah, a day ahead. So, so thanks for so much, so much for, for, for joining uh, from all the way around the world. I'm amazed this Zoom thing still works, truthfully. I was worried because we hadn't gone that far um, overseas quite yet with a podcast, so this was a test to go go down to Auckland, New Zealand, and, and see uh, this thing work, but it's, yeah. it's working uh, magically, so quite I'm a, just amazed. Good. There's a bit of a challenge to find a good spot time. Yes, yes. That That's one uh, thing I've realized in my Calendly booking system. It's biased to North America, so so yeah. uh, I'm glad we were able to, to figure that out, but I'll have to think about that for future bookings with, with other people. Uh, so uh, as with any of these podcasts, informal conversations, some of our listeners who've heard other ones know it, it's just a conversation going back and forth. Um, and, and so this one I'm really excited about because uh, I've known you for several years. Uh, you know, I was thinking back, I'm like, oh God, Pete and I are going to date ourselves. And because uh, in my mind, I still think back to our <laughs> PhD days as if it was yesterday. And it's not. But maybe to start things off, um, how about you introduce who you are and how you got into forestry I guess yeah okay so I'm actually second generation forester so my my dad was a forester um and uh, actually like most sons I was going flat out trying to something find something else to do because I didn't want to do what my dad did but I ended up uh, drifting back to it so he was a what we call a farm forester so he would go out to farmers and advise on plantings and manage woodlots um, so I used to spend a lot of my younger years trawling through forests actually being the um, guinea pig guy who runs out and puts the tape out and measures everything and some pretty cool locations in New Zealand so it was always you know good to get outside and in the outdoors and then I went actually first degree I did was agriculture so true to form didn't want to do what my dad did um, I did that but then realized it's pretty hard to get into if you can't own a farm so that was uh, the way I found my way back to forestry, did a forestry degree, um, and then spent three years as an operational forester. So I was lucky enough to be posted up into Asia. So I worked in Laos for three years on plantations. And at that stage, it sort of became a bit uh, more interesting. I thought, oh, I'd like to specialise into remote sensing. So I popped off um, and did a master's first and then a PhD in the UK in forestry remote sensing. And that's really where I started to, to get a bit of a passion for this. Um, so it's more about really the operational forestry stuff was about, okay, how can we make more of data sets? Uh, a good case in point would be Laos, where we had, we were told to or were advised to um, establish 50,000 hectares of plantations, but we had no idea where we could actually put them. Um, we had Russian aerial photography from the 1960s. Um, 
satellite data was still really expensive, but it was one of the only options to, to look at. Um, right. So started to get into that and, and just, yeah, I thought, oh, wow, uh, this is me. Um, so again, at, at Durham, I ended up actually doing a more of an operational PhD. So it was using LIDAR and um, time series data to, to basically improve information or forest descriptions. And that was really good because working with the Forestry Commission and Swedish Board of Forestry um, on a joint project. And my job really was actually as a tech transfer guy because I understood the forestry and was quickly catching up on the technical remote sensing stuff. Um, so trying to relate that back to foresters on the ground. Um, one of the forestry commission um, areas that we're working with was in Scotland, so the accents were really hard to understand. So to put everything into writing. So I'm sure some talking. of our listeners are listening right now, chuckling, going like, hmm, okay, got you with you. <laughs> okay, what what is this turkey talking about? And um, so yeah, that was that was good fun. Um, but came out of that and headed back to New Zealand in 2005 and, and started work um, really building on what I'd learned at university and also from practical forestry sense. Um, it was only me to start with, but now we've got a team of eight eight guys uh, yeah. working alongside pretty talented yeah yeah so so how did you pick Durham of like you know kiwi I, I always joke you take a canadian throw them into new zealand you get a kiwi you take a kiwi throw them in canada you have a canadian like having visited uh, you know we we we, we connected what oh it's getting like is it five years ago we connected at uh force tech yeah, event force tech. Yeah. yeah yeah so yeah, yeah, a long yeah. time ago but uh but when i visited uh you know we were down in auckland rotorua i was just like man it, it's literally like Kiwis, Canadians, the same attitude, chill, you know, accepting and all that jazz. But what what made you choose, you know, New Zealand to go to Durham uh, in the UK of all places? Was there a special connection or someone you knew or just you just wanted to go to the UK? Oh, oh it's, it's always a girl involved. So that's probably where it's, <laughs> yeah, that's the total answer to the question, to be honest. But uh, no, I was at, I'd come to the end of my tenure in, in Laos, and I was um, basically told that the project didn't no longer needed consulting. So I was working for a consulting firm at the time, um, but I didn't want to go back to New Zealand. Uh, I was still okay. had a tra have a travel travel bug, and also wanted to further look at um, educational opportunities. So I looked. Um, my my girlfriend at the time now my wife uh had a, had got a job in, in durham so i was looking for opportunities to do remote gotcha. and ended up actually doing a taught masters with uh, a, a guy called professor danny donahue um who we we still work together today so that that relationship goes back some 15 oh, years amazing now. amazing and then is it really is a taught master so you paid for that so that wasn't cheap but um out of that uh, you know, as, as you know, it actually gives you an entry or a ticket to something else. Yeah. Um, so once you've got that, it's it's easier to get work. Right. Um, and it so happened that this uh, project came up. It was a five-year project. It was uh, EU-funded, and it was called Forest Safe. Um, so you might know the Forest Sat conference program that came out of that project. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they they said, okay, so your staff, you can do your PhD for free, which was pretty cool. And I said, and they said, the only downside is that we've only got three years left on the project. So you have to finish the thing in three years. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure at all. <laughs> and and, yeah, and by the way, you're working at the same time. So I was a research associate, but um, that wasn't hard because Danny's such a good guy. We said, I'll just structure all the field work around answering these questions, write them up and off you go. Yeah. So 
we had LIDAR, we had uh, time series satellite data to analyze, um, looking at terrestrial laser scanning, which is one of the first, at that time it was only used in quarries, but uh, we stuck it in the forest to see what it could do. Yeah. And wrote that up and, and that's kind of where it sort of ended up being. And then, like I say, we continued that relationship with Danny. So we, we one of the bigger projects I've had since leaving the university is doing forest change mapping for Guyana. So we grabbed the, the Durham guys to, to be the independent auditors um, yeah. of the mapping that the Forest Commission does in Guyana. So, yeah, that, so, that was... so maybe maybe explain to our listeners and myself, because I know I've chatted with you about it. It's, it's related to, like, I, I believe the UN Red Plus carbon audit, but maybe, again, not in my wheelhouse. That's why I love talking with you, because the stuff you guys do often, like, like aside from the remote sensing, like I, I, it's not my wheelhouse, so I, I love learning from that. But maybe for our listeners, walk us through, you know, like what what's happening in Guyana context. I assume it's, uh, you know, don't cut the trees basically, and there's a carbon yeah, yeah. exchange. Uh, you know, there's things happening. But maybe walk us through, just you know, give us a bigger picture on, you know, what's happening there. Maybe some of the technologies, right, and some of the challenges you you face yeah, then versus okay. now, because I know you're heavy in the RS EO space now. Yeah, yeah. So that was, um, it was interesting because even though I was lucky I did my PhD in, in time series data analysis, not just LIDAR, because at that time LIDAR was taking a while to come along. But when Guyana turned up, it was an interesting um, opportunity because they were one of the first countries. So this is Guyana in South America, not Ghana in Africa. I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody gets that wrong with my accent. They go, oh, that's cool to be in Africa. Um, so they, they came um, and asked, actually, because I'd met uh, the head of planning, um, again, a very astute person, Pradeepa. Um, she she said, OK, we've got this opportunity with Norway. Um, we're called a, a red early mover. And I said, oh, that's cool. What's an ed? What's her early mover? And she said, well, the president uh, at the, this point in time is really keen to preserve Guyana's natural forest. So it's, it's rainforest and it backs into the Amazon. So it's a country that's got 85% forest cover. Uh, okay. It's got a really small small population of a million people, mostly along the coastal fringe, and hardly any infrastructure on the interior. So it's if you go into the forest, you can drive a road and walk, I don't know, 10 minutes, and you really are in the Amazon. Wow. So that, that's pretty cool. Very so they cool. signed up a, a bilateral agreement. So this is before, uh, I guess, um, the UN Red program really came on uh, with the Norwegians to conserve the forest. Uh, and the, the idea here was that um, if Guyana kept the deforestation rate low, um, so around about 12,000 hectares a year, they would get paid $250 million over the next five years. Well, so it was worth how, it. How, how much? $250 million. Wow. So at, at that point, it was about 10% of GDP. Um, wow. And so they said, okay, we've got... Um, when we turned up, actually, this is 2009, so this is going back 10 years, we turned up and we didn't even have a country boundary. <laughs> so we had to go had to go to Lands and Survey and say, okay, so which side, they had a survey map, so I said, which side of the Quarantine River, which is on the, the border with Suriname, do you have? Which side does Suriname have? And so we reconstructed it from there. And we had such a horrendous timeline, we had to map basically change from 1990, because it's 1990, it's the baseline year, um, which you compare back to. Um, so we had to come up with a forest, non-forest map. So what that consists of is, okay, what's all natural forest now? Um, and what's yep. non-forest? What's grassland, infrastructure, roads at this point in time? And so once you've got that, you, you have a baseline. So you have a forest mask, so to speak. 
Right. And you compare against that forest mask at that time, it was every five years up to 2009 was set as the baseline year. So we went about that. We had to do that in three months. Um, wow. So we went flat tack. Spent um, actually spent my fortieth birthday in Guyana because of that. So we were doing that <laughs> I, I hope your wife was with you and your family was with you. Otherwise, uh, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's another story, but I haven't got time. Um, so yeah, so that was pretty good. We worked on a, a, a road system coming in out, so that was good. But the neat thing about this is that the idea here is it was tech transfer again. So building on what I did during PhD. So okay, so we wanted to set up a system that the Guyanese Forestry Commission could run on their own um, and then support it. And so they, while they were gearing up, so the, the background of the, the analysts in Guyana was that they all had GIS experience but had no remote sensing experience. So that's what we were bringing to the party. Okay. Plus we were also bringing the framework for monitoring. So the idea with this is that you have to monitor every hectare in Guyana for change. And if it changes, then basically you're documented through time. And that builds you a really good baseline. So you actually know what historically the deforestation rate has been. Right. And then that, that works out to payday. So if you keep it below gotcha. 12,000 hectares, you get paid. If you exceed that, they started discounting. So they take 50% okay. off. Um, so whilst you kind of, it's interesting because you actually start from nothing. So where I go back to the start was, okay, we delineated the, the boundary of the country. We started from nothing, built it to something. Um, and now that, that in the old days is quite funny because it used to be Landsat based. Um, okay. So your Landsat's a 30 metre resolution. Yep. Um, United States Geological Survey has the, the data sets, Sioux Falls. And we would um, basically ask them to send us a hard drive of satellite data. They'd oh, send boy. a hard disk of satellite data back to the yep. 1990s. So all the scenes that ever been downlinked from a ground station, some from Brazil, ground station and Curitiba, and then also US. We'd get all that stuffed onto a hard drive, posted down, and then load it onto the, the desktops and start the analysis. And that is very manual. Yeah. It's totally a manual process. And we were going, okay, so we've got analysts who've got GIS experience, no remote sensing experience. We just set up a whole lot of processes that let them use at that time ArcGIS. Um, to map it and yep. grid it up the country and they'd work sequentially through it, documenting change. So once you had that forest on forest mask, you were looking for change within the forest and right. documenting that every year. Um, now to get the money, you had to be past the audit. So you had a, a, another audit team coming over the top of that at the end of each year and pull the whole thing to bits. So you had wow. to have standard operating procedures written, you had to have the analysts so we went in the room, we were, we were, you know, with the consultants. So we get taken out of the room and the analysts have to stand on their own two feet and, and show what they're doing, wow. doing um, wow. and show that they could do it in a repetitive way. So that's, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And I remember talking with you in the past about that. You guys developed some novel algorithms, right, to process that change. Like this isn't just a, uh, create a basic NDVI and, and, and stuff like you guys actually, if I remember correctly, last time we connected, um down in new zealand you guys had some magic and you've continually evolved some yeah. of it but started from there is that right yeah that's right so it was really good because guyana is probably one of the cloudiest countries in the world um and as everybody knows using optical data it's a super big challenge to do any cloud clearing um so you either have two options here you either find a cloud free image 
um, or a portion of image and you just look at heaps of imagery. So you can imagine that's a huge data stack where you're just looking at the same piece of dirt on the ground, but cycling, sifting through all the images to find the one that can help you. And some may be cloud on one part and cloud free on another part. So you've got lots of data to look at. That's one way to do it. What we've ended up moving to was um, using uh, cloud-based processes. So we went away from the desktop and okay. said, okay, all the imagery now is stored in the cloud by a number of different agencies, which is really good. So that gives you automatic access to the historical archive for Landsat going back to 1972. Um, and then everything that's ever come on that's um, not, it's non-commercial. So census like Sentinel-2 have been a real right. big influence, I think, in terms of um, being able to get repeatable data. So where Landsat had a repeat visit over the same location every 16 days, <clears throat> still a problem. Um, we didn't have enough cloud-free data. So we, when Sentinel came along, has a repeat visit with two satellites in orbit of five days. It's, it makes a massive difference. Mm -hmm. And then you've got radar, radar satellites, which you can slot in as well. So yeah. we went about um, developing in the cloud. So that, that was good because that is the platform we're using is Google Earth Engine. Okay. So we, we popped along to, um, to Google's headquarters and had a chat to them, said, okay, we've got this project. Um, can we use the platform for this? And they said, yep, that fits under the mandated geo for good. Off you go. So we developed everything um, in that platform. So it basically has a scripting environment, um, which everybody sees. So they run the scripts, they keep the code. So the Forest Commission's got the code and we just develop around uh, new algorithms, new data sets as they come in. Uh, okay. And one of the one the big ones here is actually the cloud clearing algorithms. Okay. So you can leverage off the community there. So there's some really good... Um, uh, cloud clearing algorithms that you can use from uh, ESA's developed and it's all in Earth Engine. Yeah. Just keep ticking along and then developing and, and the good thing about it is that it's um, you can customise it so we can customise that interface to whatever Forest Commission requires. Um, so so for, for some of our listeners out there who are kind of playing into the cloud like when we look at forestry market research largely actually across the globe it's split 50 i was surprised 50 percent on who's still on-prem versus who's gone to the the cloud and so with google earth engine was that choice really because um given the nature of the work that there wouldn't be a charge associated with uh gce like thinking of azure aws digital which all sorts of different things um for some of our listeners who are you know trying to pick what they should use, it can be confusing. So thinking with your experience with, with uh, Google Cloud Engine, what was it really because uh, aside from scalability and whatnot, was there a cost? Like, did you have to pay for those resources or because it was part of that special program, it was largely a no brainer because you could access the infrastructure for free or maybe share some thoughts on uh, you know how you got there then. Are you still happy with that or what you see? Are there any advantages of GC over some of the other public cloud offerings today? Well, I think it's an evolving space very quickly. I mean, you've seen uh, the planetary computer that Microsoft's launching. Yeah. Um, so the, but the, going back to Google Cloud, um, uh, sort of Earth Engine, um, we were introduced that, to that by actually FAO. So a chap called Eric Lindquist, which you, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think you know Eric quite well too. So Eric was showing us some of the scripts because what we were, and it was really necessity-based for us because we go, we don't want first um, hard drives from USGS every year. Um, we, we need a way to methodically store this data. Um, if we have to put it onto our own service, then it's really redundant data, so it's actually a cost. 
So, and the other thing actually can go on is we have blackouts. So the power oh, goes off. Because uh, okay. current point in time, they run diesel generators to generate the power for the country. Um, wow. So they don't have hydro, they don't have thermal, they don't have anything like that. So we would be trucking along using um, a desktop software. Uh, Envy was the software of choice. And suddenly the power goes off. We go, oh, crap, start again. So yeah. in our case, so, um, somewhere that, so we're looking really for an environment. It could have been, and ESA was still getting their, their ducks in a row. So we were looking for an environment that had the data. That was the first consideration. And then we were looking for an environment where we could take, because a lot of the algorithms are not new. Um, they actually exist in desktop packages, but you take those algorithms okay. and you put them in the cloud and you adapt them. And the speed of adaptation is cool because you've got the cloud processing. So your listeners will know, but the cloud processing is basically stringing a whole lot of computers together. So yeah. the results are super fast, instantaneous, yeah. um, fast load, fast um, process. And from that point, you've actually got, you're starting to generate information from the satellite data. So those are the, really the, the key, key things we're looking for. Um, and then we just wanted to round it out. We didn't want to, take anything for free so that's why we went and had a chat with google and said you know if we put a bit of effort into this so we've been programming in that environment for probably four years now okay okay it'll be okay to keep doing that you're not gonna i know this is that because google earth engine is really for non-commercial use and educational use that's right um, and they are <clears throat> migrating to a commercial um, offering but that's still discussions and might take a while to work out because <clears throat> Because in a sense, you don't. The thing you would notice actually is that what's really um, pushed this area forward is the availability of data mm -hmm. um, and, and speed of processing. Yep. And it's probably the next thing is actually the communication materials that you generate and the products you generate from doing both those things. So dashboards, yep. for example, um, making life easy for people because people are just bombarded with information at the moment. Well, you know, we've we've talked to other people and, and some comments um, like on this podcast and they said, uh, you know, some people said there's there's almost too much data um, out there that, you know, how do you make sense of it all? And and I think yeah. of we've always yeah. uh, I've always had this, thesis, you know, data is data and we, we hear, you know, data is the new oil, blah, blah, blah. But it's the information product that's really of interest to drive that decision or solve a problem versus how much data is there um, actually there? And and I like the point about the cloud in the sense of like often when I talk to people, um, there's always jargon, right? Like we can scale out um, in the cloud, you know, to your point, start stringing all these VMs, virtual machines together or scale up, like actually, you know, take each one of these VMs, add more memory or more CPU processing and stuff. So it's this magical world, but it's moving so so quickly, like compared to when you and I were doing our PhD, it's yeah. like, you know, ASCII yeah. text files or the Rage DVDs and, and spindles and stuff like times have completely yeah. changed on that, that front. So, so very cool work there. And I know uh, for our listeners, uh, you know, if you're not in the EO space remote sensing, there is jargon at play, you know, ESA, European Space Agency, Pete and I are just going with the flow. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, there's our own nomenclature and, and jargon there. But I guess thinking of that work, like, so with Indu4, you're um, the head of resource uh, monitoring in the New Zealand office. How many are you? How many are you in the New Zealand office? So, we're actually into for New Zealand is interesting because we we're a forest consulting um, company, okay. and or so is Interfor Group really. But it's uh, in the New Zealand office. We're split pretty much in the middle. So we got 
forest valuation due diligence. So if you're okay. selling a forest asset or buying a forest asset, that's a big one. You usually talk to us about the transaction. Um, so we're about describing describing the forest in terms of its wood flow capabilities, financials, um, and areas. And that's the area bits where we sort of slot in. So my okay. group is eight, eight of that number. So eight, okay. of, the, um, eight of the 19. Okay. Um, and then within my group, that's really interesting because I think what you're seeing is that uh, the digital age is starting to take over. So the skill sets that you need now, um, if you hark back to when you did your PhD, are quite different. So okay. whereas before, you could say, okay, if I did my PhD again, I would, I would um, have probably have to change the way I did it. You know, you need to be skilled in data processing, programming, uh, you know, web development, all these sort of things, and data science. So it's it's a really fast moving environment where we, my team is um, three foresters, maths degree, um, computer programming, computer science, geography, um, and coastal geomorphology. Wow. Yeah, and forestry um, is the minority in that group. Yeah. Um, so you can take, whatever you like actually, you can take remote sense data and apply it across a lot of different disciplines. It's just really how you get information. So we would probably the forest intelligence side of, for us is, is, the, um, is the other part when we're not doing monitoring deforestation in Guyana, we're doing other, adding other values to uh, either the forestry valuation team or looking at assets in a different way yeah. so using lidar eo data um, deep learning for tree detection that sort of thing precision forestry so all, all those sort of um, elements come into play yeah so so that's a good point because like, i know looking at the website into for you know the australia finland new zealand usa so obviously you're uh, on, on the new zealand side i know uh, there's, uh, you know, the business side is broken down into resource monitoring and generating resource insight, national scale monitoring and delivery platform. And I know even your website, you know, it says forest and intelligence. Um, so you're kind of like, like in the thick of things in terms of, you know, who's who in the zoo and what's happening to you. And there's a lot, like when we look at the, the, the market right now, there's a lot of venture dollars coming into the earth observation space and all sorts of things that are happening. But given your experience and, and the technologies you use, can you, can you maybe share uh, with the listeners uh, what used to be the go-to suite of technologies and to your comment that even your team, you're seeing that skill set needing to change um, and given all the changes, what, what's, what's that, that new set of things like, like Landsat is, you know, great program. It's continuing. You've mentioned Sentinel, um, you know, and there's all, like, you got the planets of the world. You got all sorts of stuff, the commercial, you got Capella with the radar side of things. Like, like it's, it's just crazy. There's just so much. And um, what are you seeing now from a technology? What gets Pete Watts and, and his team excited about remote sensing today compared to maybe even, you know, as little as a year or two years ago and what you're seeing in the market in trends? So I think the trends is that you see more satellites in space, uh, which is a good thing. Um, and what that means is actually the price drops. So it's where it's before it used to be quite expensive to get, um, say, a, a worldview scene, which is the Maxar platform or Planet's, Planet Scope or even um, Skysat, which is also Planet. Those prices are dropping and the coverage is improving. Um, so the resolution improves, the coverage improves, the price drops. It becomes a more, I guess, compelling um, argument to actually use it in your more day-to-day -day use um, and then I say I think the, the software packages have done well so the arches and the QGIS are doing well with a certain segment of the of the market is just okay visual 
Um, we don't need to do any analytics. We just want to have a look at what the forest status at the moment. So heads up digitizing where you bring in the image and you map around the edges of the boundaries um, is probably quite a big part of that market. So we see that um, evolving and that's um, interesting to say the venture capital impact is the marketing aspect of that. So there's massive marketing effort yes. around, hey, our data's here, it's daily, it's awesome, you know, use it. And yeah. hey, people get that message um, and they, it's almost the fear of missing out. If you if you're not on that bandwagon a little bit, yeah. so we step back we step back a bit from that. We go okay, we're, we're data agnostic. We don't need to we don't particularly subscribe to any particular um, company uh, like the Maxars and Planet. We use their data. We're data users, but we try and apply their data in a way that can add value. That's really where we're trying to get to. Um, and so in saying that, what we've sort of come up with is sort of a landscape monitoring approach where. If you step back and you look at things from a, a wide scale, you go, okay, well, I'm more screening for issues or alerts. So I might use Sentinel for that. Um, and the time series element, that's the that's the real, real thing. That's one that's one thing that's um, quite novel is the analysis of time series data now. So mm -hmm. just looking looking at the same same area, but setting it up in a way that you can generate alerts and anything change, um, which is quite a transferable. Right. Um, product. So you, once you've got the alert, you you no longer if you're subscribing to someone who's providing you daily imagery, you don't have to look at the whole set of daily imagery or as whole large areas. You actually just go to the place that's generated the alert. So it's more efficient um, right. way of using it. So getting a lot of those processes in train and showing the value. Um, so I think that's that's one one aspect. Second second part would be around the deep learning. So mm -hmm. Not sure if you're too too familiar with that, but it's really um, using high resolution data, uh, moving away from traditional pixel based classifiers to object based mm -hmm. um, classification. So you have a have a an image, say, and you train the algorithm, so it's AI, um, to look for similar objects on the same image. Um, so you have a training and testing set, um, bit of science in there. So you hold thirty percent back, and then you to see how good you are at actually when you run the model. Um, to come out with the results and that we're seeing can be applied to a lot of different areas so we, we're using it for survival mapping of um, UAV data okay. uh, and then but then also realizing that UAVs, UAVs are kind of um, hindered by battery life at this current point in time and also line of sight we, we stuck a camera on a Cessna to a light aircraft and yeah. that's flying near infrared band so that's the You've got the red, green, and blue, which is true color, and you've got the near infrared, which is also picking up something different in the light spectrum where it's picking up photosynthetic activity. Yep. So it's really good for identifying living and dead things, for example. Um, Lives things are really bright in the near infrared. So using those that technology on that platform, we can cover large areas pretty quick, yeah. um, so like 8,000 hectares a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Continuous yeah. coverage or going point to shoot mode where you just fly waypoints. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's picking up the detail you need. Yeah, so so sounds like lots of like multi-platform technologies that you guys use. You're using the the best, and and so far, listeners often. Uh, this is one of my personal peeves. You know, when people talk about AI, it's like this broad term, and you know, I don't do AI machine learning, and so really, AIs are broad domain machine learning is a subsist is a part of AI and deep learning is a, a part of that machine learning space. But one of the things we often hear, and I'd be interested in your thought is, 
these are only successful to the extent that you have massive volumes of uh, a training data. So even when you say that's 70, 30, uh, and I know looking at on social, you recently uh, did some work with Scion, uh, with some mapping with deep learning. So maybe uh, first question there is, is uh, true or false, you need a truckload uh, of data to really make this work, or is that a myth? And then maybe introduce who Scion is for our listeners, because I know what it is, having been down in your neck of the woods, but I know pretty much everyone else outside of your region probably won't. And then tell us how you applied maybe those deep learning things and, and what, what you learned from that. Yeah, I think you are correct. You do need um, training data. So it just depends a little bit how, how complex the environment is. So New Zealand, we're 99% radiator point. So that's uh, planting seedlings of the same same species everywhere. Uh, so the, and the spacings are very similar and the regimes are quite similar. So you, you do have, once you know what a radiator pine looks like, uh, you kind of, okay, you can build a tree model for that. The, the complexity comes with that is when it's uh, maybe cut over. So someone's harvested it and then planted through it. It looks quite okay. different to the model um, or it's really, crappy growth you know you've got someone's coming and some died some alive some some stunted so if you build the training sets around that concept you it's a, it's a much simpler thing so we do we do actually end up at the moment um build a training set for everything we get uh we haven't got to the generic model yet okay. so that's a work in progress but i think it's it, it's coming coming along and there's a lot of interest in it and the the cool thing would be is if you got more collaboration uh, where people actually are busy annotating because that's what it is basically drawing and then um, you, you can share those annotations uh, across and apply them in the models and the, and the way the models are applied you might know the listeners might know there's a few available in sort of the, the um, larger software packages like ArcGIS ArcGIS, but we've gone and actually built it from scratch. So okay. we've taken open source code and running it on a Linux machine. And the reason, the main reason to do that is it scales. Um, so you don't get caught up with um, computational overhead on those packages okay. uh, because they are big beasts, like good programs, but they take a lot of um, uh, computer power to run. So we run it on a Linux machine, feed it in, it breaks it up into chunks. And we've got a couple of clever guys who've worked out the process end to end. With the help of Scion, so Scion is New Zealand Forest Research, based in Rotorua and Christchurch. So we've linked them with their geomatics team, um, and they're, they're actually really, really good. So they, they, the linkage for us really is to take some of their science and then make it operational. Okay. Um, and the feedback loop on that, so it's not all, not all just sitting there just cashing dollars in. The feedback loop is that there's always research to be done once you commercialise something, um, which is what we've done in Guyana as well. Uh, basically always had an operational R&D approach. So we know to keep things moving ahead um, and keeping abreast of actually changes in technology and algorithms that you still have to put quite a lot of effort into just keeping code bases updated and looking for new algorithms. Same thing yeah. with deep learning. Yeah, Same yeah. idea. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you said that because when you're talking about Scion right away in my mind, you know, as I, I connect the dots in my head, you know, your journey, it's like there's definitely that tech transfer, that knowledge transfer theme throughout uh, a lot of your career in terms of the projects. And, and Scion's another example when you say operationalizing the research and marrying the best minds together, which we know is uh, sometimes easier said than, than, than done per se. Um, so thinking of like an average forester then. 
It's deep learning out of their wheelhouse. Would you, you know, cause you mentioned you know, even with your team, the skill set has changed. And I, I agree completely. Like uh, there's times I'd go back and fish my PhD dissertation. Uh, I think it's in the closet and all honesty, I don't know where yours <laughs> is, but I pull it out and I scan it. And, and there's times I kind of laugh and go like, I cannot believe I got a PhD degree for this. Thinking back to the things we're working on now, I don't know if you, you, you have that same experience, but some of these new technologies, a lot of, foresters, digital foresters are interested to explore in-house. What, what's your suggestion to them on how to get uh, started? Is it really buying a commercial package and doing that? Is it going, you know, the R route? Is it going, uh, like, there's lots of Python libraries out there in that whole data science world. What's your suggestion to, to a forester who's saying, you know, I really want to get into this, uh, this uh, deep learning world and figure things out? Because on our side, what we're seeing often is that if you run it through a machine learning, you got pretty good results. You run it through a deep learning, you're going to boost results by five to 10% um, per yep. se. Um, but what's your suggestion to a, a listener who's like, yeah, I want to get into this. Where, 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 where would you say uh, they should start? Well, I think I, there's a lot of stuff online. Yeah. It's yeah. always probably too much, uh, but you know, even, even that, that, uh, that's, that's Pete's polite way of saying, uh, Kev, <laughs> that's called Google. Just Google it and, and, and the problem solve. Thank you. <laughs> if you've got an appetite for it, then yeah, I think I would go, go through some of the better credible packages. Uh, so there's, there's a lot, like a lot of stuff in R and there's a lot of stuff in, um, I guess the, the deep learning, what we found is that, to be honest, I don't touch it, right? So I'm the, I am the tech transfer guy because I understand what the guys are doing in terms of the outputs, but I don't go near what the code is. So that's, it's almost like a specialism. Um, so that's what I'm informing our team. We've, we've made that conscious decision where we've got guys who are really super tech, um, uh, really good at that. And just sometimes they need a few, bit of gray haired um, input. <laughs> yeah. So here you go. Because to be all, all honest, actually, things have an interesting cycle where people come back and go, this is the latest and greatest. And you go, yeah, but we tried that 10 years ago. Similar, similar approach, um, using similar algorithms doesn't really work for these reasons. And you go, go, go at it this way. And an example of that would be, oh, we're going to go and use um, deep learning to identify all the single trees in the forest at age 15. So the canopy's closed. And you go, no, that won't work. Why? Because the crowns are coalesced and you can't tell one tree from the other. You know, it's pointless. Yeah. But, but if I have so enough yeah. training data, Pete, if I have enough training data, it'll, it'll know, right? It's got to work. No, but you do believe the model, right? So everybody loves maps and they believe maps and they go, yeah, this is the answer. And you go, nah. <laughs> it just happens that you fluke the same number of stems per hectare. So um, going back to your question, I think if you're really keen on this stuff, um, get, in, get on Google, yeah, and, and work out what elements you're really interested in because uh, it's such a wide and broad area. Uh, you can go maybe looking at some demo data sets that are available in some of the packages is a good way to go to get an idea of what you're actually going to do. But then if you need to understand the nuts and bolts of um, the models, because they're models are changing all the time as well. So there's ones that just do bounding boxes on objects yeah. and there's ones that segment crowns. They're quite different models yeah. and different ways to actually operate. Um, so the guys tell me. So yeah, well, that's the thing. Once you Google it, you know, you, have a, you know, TensorFlow comes up, YOLO three on like they make it sound like oh, it's so easy. You just go ahead and do it. But 
as we know, sometimes it, uh, there's more, uh, there's an equal amount of art and science uh, at play. Uh, so interesting conversation with you because we're more on the remote sensing side. Well, not more on it, but different view because I, I, as, as I've talked with other people on this podcast, you know, some feedback I get is, ah, oh, it's just like, so just commercial operational forestry, you know, there's other aspects of forestry, you know, talk about. So this is a cool one because it's kind of touching on different aspects of, of earth observation and monitoring for different things. Um, but also uh, tell me about New Zealand, commercial forestry in New Zealand. What's happening? What are you seeing on the ground? Because you guys are a beautiful island. So with COVID-19, yeah, I think your prime minister just kind of shut all the borders. And when things were good, you and the Australians made a little bubble and then now it's kind of closed. I think you guys are in a lockdown. Are you guys in a lockdown yeah. right now? Yeah, yeah we number first week of uh, two weeks now for us, okay. uh, which I think was slide into six. And so you mentioned Radiata Pine, like, again, I remember down Rotorua going for a hike. Uh, I can't remember that. Uh, there's a park just close to the, the, the hotel we were yeah, at. Yeah, 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 yeah. The distinction. There's a there's a redwood grove there. Yes, so that's, that's it. A, yeah, beautiful, amazing. Redwood. You could spend hours yeah. walking there. Um, but maybe for our listeners, mm -hmm. tell tell us what you're seeing on the ground with forestry in New Zealand and and the work, the geospatial work you're you're doing. You mentioned drones, et cetera, and EO GIS. Is there a a set stack that you're seeing most New Zealand forestry companies, your clients and customers, um, using? Like as an example, are drones kind of everyday tools now in New Zealand granted you mentioned you know you still have line of sight constraints I like you know in Canada I think we're we're not over that but I know there's some beyond yeah. uh, line of sight projects that have gone but maybe for our listeners uh, school us on on what forestry is like in New Zealand and how you're helping with technology well it was interesting because every everybody you start from the highest resolution everybody's got a drone uh, and they fly <laughs> for a variety of reasons and it's probably a perk of the job almost I'd say yeah but, uh, and that and there's always the software packages that go on behind that. So it's been used for anything from sort of just looking, doing a recce, having a look, see whether anything's changed or um, building DTMs, uh, doing plot counts. Some of the more advanced companies are doing that. Uh, they're going hard out at trying to work out deep learning okay. uh, to get to get survival counts. So like a lot of forestry companies, you go, or oh, if you actually know where the location of a tree is, you know the location for life. Um, so you can start to build tree level models rather than stand based models. Right. So it's a real active area of research, which is crossing over into the operational use. So foresters are seeing that um, as okay. If we can crack this one, uh, we take a lot of boots off the ground, so we don't have to do basically do a forest um, census at an early age and characterise the forest quite early, uh, because our forests grow right out of pine. We were harvesting that twenty five years. Okay. Um, and that's a variety of uh, products you're pulling out of that. So if you're pruning, you've got peeler logs, which have got no knots in them because you're taking the branches off, or you've got saw logs uh, and you're looking for small branches. Uh, and that majority of our timber actually is exported to China. Um, so that's in log form. So not a lot of processing. So you, the get-go thing really is actually to grow trees as big and fast as you possibly can. Uh, that's what gotcha. the objective is a lot of the time. Gotcha. Um, and then, then LIDAR is actually, we're a little bit behind the rest of the world, but um, we've just had the governments funded 80% uh, of the country to be flown in LIDAR. Okay. Um, so that's, previously that's been forestry companies going out and dipping into their own pocket or collaborating with other companies to fly LIDAR and then generating information like digital terrain models, so service models for harvesting, roading. Oh. 
So what's driving um, what's driving that though? Is it forestry or is it terrain disaster insurance? Uh, what's what's pushing that forward? I would say environmental um, okay. monitoring because you've got a lot of land that's really steep um, and there's a lot of a um, lot more um, store put in trying to get our rivers back to swimmable and fishable. Fishable okay. is that a word? Fishable is a word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, at the moment they're weightable, uh, which is not not a great thing. So they they recognise that there's a lot of sediment going into the into the rivers and farming is obviously a big part of New Zealand as well. So there's a lot of also nutrient going into the rivers. And if you understand the topography and the terrain, then you've got ways to better understand, I think, how to manage it. Um, so that that's part of the driver. So good terrain data leads to a lot of good outcomes in terms of describing what you've got and better management. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as foresters, uh, we, we benefit from that because we, we already know what you can do with LIDAR. It's just been, been a bit of a hindrance in terms of not being able to have it. Uh, so working with that and then the interesting thing, some of the work we're doing in for actually with Scion again is looking at how you can update LIDAR using photogrammetric point clouds. Okay. Yep. So again, using the Cessna approach where you get lots of photos with lots of overlap on them, you get viewpoints on the ground from the different angles. Yeah. And you build the point cloud from that. So once you've already got a really fantastic terrain model from LIDAR, you get the photogrammetric point cloud from the aircraft. Um, and that's the point that tell you the height of the vegetation above the ground. You can generate a number of interesting forestry metrics like um, timber volume, uh, estimate DVH, uh, yep. diameter of breast height. Um, yeah, yeah. So that you know, those sort of things, uh, performance-based statistics are, are becoming more widely used, and they will become more widely used as um, the what we call provincial growth fund rolls out the lighter. Yeah, it's yeah. all open, open source. That's the other cool thing. So even the point clouds are open source. Okay, so it's world, in that open data. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So for our yeah. listeners, think you know, when like because I've only been on the North Island, not the South, but but terrain is crazy. I know, like for our listeners, like. Uh, just go watch Lord of the Rings and, and you'll get a good sense of uh, the crazy terrain in, in New Zealand. And I'm sure Pete's like, oh, really? It's like, you're going to bring that stereotype of, of, of New Zealand there per se. But um, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the, the photogrammetric point cloud because, uh, you know, a lot of people we talk to forestry companies, there's that, that what's the frequency that refresh you're going to fly lighter because yeah. it's more costly and you got the baseline now of terrain. And yeah, it's going to, well, I guess in your neck of the woods, you're more seismic seismically active than maybe um canada but in principle once you've established that baseline yeah you've got you can difference from the photogrammetric point cloud and we've seen in the literature you know a bit of loss in precision but but uh arguably whether that's make or break uh when you do the cost benefit uh there's savings to realize there out of curiosity the lighter you guys flying for the nation uh usual linear mode stuff we're used to or is it going into that single photon world or geiger mode or something uh, new or is it it's or it's the usual stuff uh, and what point density out of curiosity for uh for for us like like what are they shooting if it's terrain are they are they well nowadays sensors you know you close your eyes compared to what we're used to back in our day like you're at a high yeah. point density right but but what what flavor are they they shooting for the the country well, i think it, it, my understanding is not waveform so it's discrete point but um okay. and they're running it running it at at least four points per square meter Okay. So in most situations, we would get enough ground points to, to describe the, the terrain. Because um, at, at the moment, really, we the best terrain models, unless you've already got LIDAR, are, are usually from the shuttle topography mission. Yes, RTM, yeah. 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 yeah, which is really quite dated. So 25 metre data. Um, and that, 
that's really interesting outcomes if you try and do any sort of uh, modeling of terrain with it you miss a lot um, and that's that's the cost of um, setting up ground-based versus hauler and different configurations of um, haulers which mean you're putting a tower up on the on the horizon and pulling timber to it um, and if you don't describe the terrain properly you you just end up putting it in the wrong place yeah absolutely absolutely well it's and interesting to see a lot of countries damage. recognizing data in this case like it's a it's an infrastructure it's a data infrastructure yeah. you've collected it once and and it's cool that it's in that open data movement because then you know everyone will benefit i'm sure the roi will be out the out the roof uh, on that front um, per se uh, so thinking as as we're as we're as we're winding down pete um you know obviously broad background from you your side you've seen a lot of things plugged into different uh things i i, I had not known there's a laos you know start there and you know kind of laos not ready to go back to new zealand and the uk and then you know you ended up back in uh, new zealand so i guess the the, the timing was right or as I joke we just got old and we was we reverted to back what was from what was familiar to us um, per se but um, thinking of let's say trends um, what are you the most excited about uh, over the the coming few years is there one forestry technology trend that that you're really keeping your eye I know you mentioned deep learning is that the one that really uh you know from from your seat is that game changer um given what you've said earlier you know why are you and I dabbled with you know eons I say that jokingly ago but um there's a lot of us from a different vintage yeah. um as I call it but uh but what's that thing uh, that cool tech that just you just feel is a is that next game changer for for forestry Oh, I think there's, there's probably a few different levels here. I, I, I do think the deep learning's going to keep improving. Um, and, you know, people become familiar, I think, with it and use, know when to use it. So a lot of it actually is just understanding when it, when it should be applied. Um, so that's one thing. The, the other thing, I think, is the communication satellites. Um, so having, you went probably different to Canada, but we've got large parts of the country which uh, don't have good Wi-Fi coverage. Oh, oh we got um, a lot of zero G in Canada, my friend. You, you got to come visit. Zero G's the, the the rage in forestry in a lot of places. So, so if you if you're trying to like, it's funny actually. The the um, telco companies will tell you they got ninety eight percent coverage, but they're talking about ninety eight percent coverage of the population, not the country. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a nice feeling actually. Go out for the day in the forest and no one can call you. That's one benefit. Yeah. But it's um, in terms of having Internet of Things and those sort of uh, sensors in the forest, you know, you can imagine that you're starting to get to precision um, measurement like they do in agriculture. So you've, if you're interested in the drivers of climate change, for example, you want to know temperature change, soil moisture, um, trying to understand that and those relationships with how your productivity is performing. Those sort of technologies will come to the fore. I think... Um, Things like spaceborne lidar, so you would already know about the Jedi mission, yeah. which sits on the International Space Station. Um, pretty coarse, but pretty interesting. I mean, if that technology keeps evolving, then you'll have lidar from space, uh, which is really my, my mind actually for anything that if you're not doing change detection, you just want to do forest parameterization or measurement, then lidar is the go-to. Um, you know, and, and you can see that with the drone technology improving as well as lidars on drones. Um, even the hover map idea, which is a LiDAR mounted on a, a, a drone in the forest, which is just zooming around, not running into trees, um, yeah. describing that. And as those battery power improves, you'll have a lot of those gadgets um, at your disposal. Um, but then again, it sort of boils down to what level you need to monitor at. 
uh, landscape um, or precision. So, okay. and what we found actually is we, we did a project, um, it's not related to forestry, but we did a project with regional councils here um, where we were monitoring, showing a, a range of monitoring tools. So it was a joint project with a number of different Crown Research Institutes who were specialists in say coastal monitoring um, or wetlands or um, sort of geomorphology and we were doing the forestry bit and we found that the the main uh, bottleneck to uptake was actually people getting hold of data and looking at it and being able to access it so whilst the the project was about um, developing tools for regional councils it was only when you gave them the tool and they started looking at say satellite data and they could easily get a hold of it they started to change right. um, their perception of the world and that's the big thing i mean Again, you, I think you, people are just bombarded with so much information that you don't know what's what's real, what's not. Um, so if you get over that, I think um, you know better communication materials. That's what foresters could do uh, well. I think it's just yeah. describe things that um, in common sense terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, lots there, Pete. Definitely lots of technologies. You know, you mentioned the hover map, right, coming from yeah. the the mining space uh, from Emacent there, and uh, yeah, just lots of you know, I, I saw. Um, you know, a, a tweet somewhere where, uh, you know, uh, there's a Boston Dynamics dog. And then I think yeah, Huawei has new, a new yeah. robot dog that looks mean, 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 mean. But yeah, who knows what the world is going to be. And I think back to a Society of American Foresters conference I went to and they had a speaker that was just kind of role playing what the future could look like. And it was kind of like, you know, the, the Tesla Cybertruck pulls up and then the trunk opens and the drone right away launches to go do its, its recon of the block. And then meanwhile, you know, there's this antenna that pops up for real time connectivity and the foresters yeah. are standing yeah. there. So boots still on the ground, I guess, but maybe, maybe different from, uh, from, from that point of view. So lots there, it's going to be an exciting time into the future. So, so Pete, thinking of all this, if our listeners want to reach out to learn more about deep learning, all the cool work Indu4 and your team's doing and in, in monitoring and, and, and whatnot. How do they get hold of you? Website, Twitter, LinkedIn, email? Uh, what, what, uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, I probably just go on the uh, our website. So it's www.indufor.co.nz. I, I love it. Dub, 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 dub. So to translate for our North America friends, triple W, I, I love talking with you, learning all these, these things. So I say that in, in jest. It's just, it's just cool. The little, the little isms there going forward. Well, Hey, my friend, thanks for so much for spending the time to talk with me. As I said, wish uh, is coming down to, you know, some of the events down in your neck of the worlds and connect over a beer again. It's, it's been far too long. Yeah, and I could flee. You know, the world, uh, you know, this pandemic gets over and we could all kind of hang out and reminisce in, in, in person per se. But thanks so much for your time. Wishing you be safe, wishing you all the best. And I look forward to seeing you in person uh, or not, not too long from now. Okay, cool. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Thanks, Pete. Cheers. See you later.